You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, 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 and welcome back to uh, an amazing uh, episode of the Radically Pragmatic Podcast. My name is Curtis Valentine. I am the co-director of the Reinventing America's Schools Project here at the Progressive Policy Institute. I am so excited about today's pod, particularly because I'm speaking to a friend and someone who is such a, a dedicated member of, of this movement, of this work. And so uh, I want to give him a chance to introduce himself. And so, uh, Krieger Rausch, tell the folks uh, who you are and, and what you do. Man, Curtis, it is uh, so good to be on with you. Uh, I have been such a fan of your work um, and the other work there at RAS and PPI for a long time. And it's such an honor to be able to have uh, you know this important conversation with you. I am the president and CEO of the National Association of Charter School Authorizers, or NAXA for short. We are an organization um, that works um, on advancing and strengthening the ideas and practices of authorizing so that students and communities, particularly those who are historically underserved, thrive. And that work has been a part of my life's work for a number of years from starting off doing the work of authorizing for the Indianapolis mayor's office back in the 90s. Um, The Indianapolis mayor is still the only mayor in the country who doesn't control um, the school boards um, to authorize charter schools. And I've learned a lot about the importance of quality and accountability and autonomy But more than anything, Curtis, the work that we're involved in and engaged in is fundamentally about kids and families and making sure that they are getting what they need to fulfill whatever pathway and God-given brilliance that's already present in them. And so I'm super thrilled to talk about um, NAXA, some of the things that we have going on um, and some of the the great things that um, PPI and RES um, have also done um, for a number of years. Um, But more than anything, Curtis, I'm really grateful for you, um, your friendship, your partnership, and great thinking in our space. We need more folks like you doing this great work, man. You know, and I I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. And I think those who you serve uh, appreciate you. I was with some education leaders recently, and your name came up three or four times. And so just so your name is is often said in rooms that you're not in, and it's it's spoken just as highly um, as it is in, in your face. And so that's, that's always a, a testament to a life well lived and a dedication to service. I do want to just park there for a second. I know this, this work is hard and it also really tests uh, what we call our why, mm. uh, why we do this. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, why, why this work? You could be doing anything else, but why education and why charter schools? Fantastic questions. And it first for me starts off by recognizing that I'm a dad. I am so fortunate to have um, two amazing girls. Um, uh, next month, as a matter of fact, they will both turn 16 and 14 respectively. So I've got a high schooler and a, a middle schooler daughter in her last year of middle school. 
and and I see the brilliance that exists in them. And I know the brilliance that exists in millions of other kids um, across the country that need for schools to grow, support, and continue to develop uh, that brilliance. And so that is my fundamental why. Um, I know I've been put on this planet to make the the world, um, in particular schooling, better, um, and particularly better for um, folks who have been um, disconnected um, from resources often. Um, that's usually lower income families, um, communities of color, um, students with disabilities, um, and other communities um, that need great high quality schools. And why charter schools? So um, this may be a little controversial to say, but I am um, fundamentally not a, a person who believes that charter schooling is the only way that we can get great schools for kids and families. What I do believe is that it's, it is the best way. I think we have seen this and the evidence in it time and time again, that when you get the structure for extraordinarily talented educators, you give them the autonomy to figure out what kids and families need. You make sure that the expectations, accountability expectations are clear and you let them do the amazing work we are seeing over and over again, the life-changing opportunities that charter schooling is presenting and accomplishing for kids and families. And we're seeing that particularly right now, Curtis, you know, during the global pandemic and ongoing struggles over race and inequity, uh, where we are seeing, you know, kind of charter schools and charter schooling doing a pretty remarkable job of being nimble and pivoting and continuing to make sure that kids and families um, are getting what they, what they need and what they're looking for. We are also seeing um, important innovations right in our space right now in the charter sector on how we see so many really talented school leaders and authorizers, which I know we'll talk a little bit more about um, uh, here uh, in a little bit, Curtis, around uh, leading the way in thinking about how we can best measure school quality and ensure accountability, even without some of our kind of annual year-end assessments. We are also seeing the charter sector being much more responsive to the needs of families and students um, in this space and rethinking how can we ensure that communities are reflected um, and their desire is reflected in what schools are offering. So a lot of reasons um, to be supportive um, of the tenets of charter schooling, which are accountability, autonomy, and authentic access with communities. You know, and I'm, I'm so glad you said that. <clears throat> yeah, I often remind people, that in addition to being the co-director of this project, I'm also on the school board. In my district, we offer um, mm -hmm. charter schools, not nearly enough. But when I, you know, explain who I serve, you know, I serve every one of my students, but about 90, 95% of them are not in charter schools. And I serve them, you know, with just as much vigor as those who are in charter. But in many cases, it's the idea that in so many places, charter schools are just treated differently, their access to funding. And so this idea that, you know, us in this fight are sort of zealots for one type of, of model is often exaggerated. It's a sense of equal access to all the models. And yes. if those models are equally funded and held accountable for that work, for that parents should not be kept from access to those uh, models. And those models can function um, the way they were supposed to intended to because they have the resources 
to do so. Uh, and so I'm so glad you said that. You are moving into this role at a very interesting time. Um, and ho- hope folks don't refer to you as the COVID president. Um, but, you know, in many ways, you know, I'm, I'm probably the, the COVID co-director. And so, you know, you, you've been in this role for how long have you been in, in, uh, in your CEO role? Yeah, I'm mean, just since uh, October, so a, a year and a couple of months. Wow, and and so in in this year, I mean, what what have you learned, and and, and what are your key priorities as as a leader? Yeah, oh boy, this um, leadership is challenging anyway. It's particularly challenging when uh, you know we are dealing with things that we haven't seen or kind of dealt with before, and I am extremely grateful for the opportunity to lead and being able to take our kind of tips and cues from communities and families. You know, the days of thinking that communities don't know, right, what they're looking for in schooling and what their kids need, one, um, it never should exist in our parlance, and two, is just false. And so it's been extremely clear as we have all, I think, navigated the challenges of the times that we find ourselves in, that now, Curtis, is a time for all hands on deck. All great ideas, all proven approaches must be embraced for kids to recover and thrive. And so there is absolutely no question that right now is the time for more high quality, innovative and equitable opportunities that communities are rightly demanding and are critical uh, at this point in time. So as I think about NAXA and our work um, with both individual authorizers, but also with policymakers and advocates and other community leaders to really make sure that we have the right infrastructure in place for more high quality, innovative and equitable educational opportunities to come to the fore. You know, we think about that work in um, a few different ways. One, there's no question that we need a new infrastructure for listening to and acting from a community aspirations. Families have gotten very different insight into what's happening um, in education and in schools right now. And all of the information, all of the evidence is pointing towards families not asking or not looking for us to go back to the way things were, but to create something new that can work better, particularly for, as my grandmother would say, Curtis, those of us who are melanin blessed in the world. So we absolutely need, as I think about kind of NAXA's moving forward here, creating the policy and the practice infrastructure so that we have new and different ways of listening to and acting from community aspirations. That's important because we absolutely need new ways of organizing learning that exists in kind of charter schooling and beyond. And we need new ways of understanding if schools are achieving their mission, ultimately, of kids being ready for college or careers or any other pathway, military service, any other pathways that they seek to move into. And we need the policy and practice infrastructure for those things to happen. We need to think differently about how we do accountability, the kinds of autonomies that are critical, right, for schools to have. Funding is certainly a part of that um, and other oversight mechanisms to make sure that we are creating a context where more great innovative ways of organizing learning exist in our space. So that's kind of one of our our first priorities, Curtis. Other two, second priority is it's really important for the profession of authorizing to more closely reflect the population of students that we serve. 
So we absolutely need more people of color um, and those with deep ties to the lived experiences of under-resourced students to lead and thrive in education, including in authorizing. So we're gonna be working pretty hard to make sure that we amplify the opportunity of authorizing to a broader constituency and engage right more folks that can help existing authorizing institutions do their work even better. And then our third key priority, Curtis, is making sure that we are keeping our commitments to creating outstanding schools in and beyond the charter sector and across a range of stakeholders. Um, it's really important that some of the, the principles and tenets and things we've learned about how to do oversight in a deregulated context and in an autonomous context is important that we share some of those things with our, um, uh, our peers and our colleagues in different education uh, sectors. That may, may that be district leaders, school board members, folks in early childhood, um, in other kinds of places where making sure that we have the right setup of accountability structures and making sure that we have the right um, autonomies in place for those folks to thrive. We've learned a lot about that um, in kind of authorizing. And there are a number of really enterprising district leaders, state superintendents, and others that are embracing those things, especially in the times that we find ourselves in right now, Curtis, because it's been so clear with some of the new and different ways that people are trying to organize learning across education right now, that they need a level of autonomy from bureaucratic structures that don't work so well. And so we're excited about figuring out ways in which we can both teach and learn around how uh, autonomy, accountability kind of principles and things we've learned in authorizing can have a broader impact. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I have you on because, and you've in many ways reiterated a lot of the principles and tenets of the work that we do, which is, you know, this idea of autonomy. You use access, but, you know, we often use the word choice, mm -hmm. but also but also this idea of, of accountability that, I'll be honest, I, when I'm out speaking, when we're, you know, bringing folks on to, to have discussions about this work, we do uh, emphasize autonomy and we also emphasize choice, but uh, it's clear that you are in many ways in this movement, really leading the fight for accountability, not just for accountability's sake, but for what it means for children, for families, for school leaders. Talk to us about why, in many ways, accountability is just as important and in maybe to some more important than even autonomy and choice. Great question. Fundamentally, Curtis, accountability is about expectations. And what we expect, what we all, right, meaning those um, involved in oversight, those who are closer to kids and families from school leaders, and especially including parents themselves. Accountability is fundamentally a question of what do we expect our schools and systems of schooling to make sure kids know and can be able to do so they can lead whatever lives they want to lead. So at its core, it's about defining those expectations. And that's particularly important in the times we find ourselves in, Curtis. So when the pandemic first started, you know, it was, was and in some instances still is, an unprecedented time where we had so many folks that were just trying to figure out how do we do remote learning? How do we, you know, um, and even in some instances, how do we even provide access 
right, basic broadband internet, right, to um, families at varying levels of success, depending on the community. And so I think all of us in the business of trying to figure out what, what expectations you know, we should make sure um, that we have so that kids can achieve their dreams. Early on, it was hard, right? The expectations were, let's figure out a way of making sure kids were getting something. And that was noble and worthy early on. Now, and even a while back, it's no longer acceptable just to stand up programs, right? Or just to have um, schools open, or just to have multiple ways in which we can engage, right, students we have to make sure that we are recovering and enabling students to thrive during this time. And so accountability becomes even more important now as we define what does recovery look like? What are the academic and student wellness expectations that we should have? Because it's just not acceptable to have students just doing school. They need to be involved in teaching and learning that allows them to continue to grow and develop, especially, especially now. And I think the, the good thing, Curtis, um, is that there are enterprising folks, right, that are, are doing important work generally, right, in the space of accountability. And yes, there is a part of accountability um, that involves consequences. And we need to get smarter, right, about how we engage with schools during these times and beyond. But what cannot be compromised ever are high expectations for student wellness, for student achievement, and their ultimate development, especially now that we are, you know, um, a ways in right to this time where the time for making sure that students are getting what they need, it's been past time. It is certainly now where we cannot shy away from having high expectations of schools and educators to make sure that kids are getting what they need. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, again, I, I think, I mean, everything you're saying is spot on. I think sort of giving folks a pass on accountability is a way for folks who would pose this work to, to call us out and say, unless you're really championing this accountability, do you really care about the things you say you care about? This, this, this to me, why it's so fundamental to this work, because it says, as we mentioned before, if, if we're putting, if we're really centering children and, and families, then that should be at the top of our list. 100%. And one of the things you said earlier, Curtis, that I think is worthy of elevating, and that is this work is hard. It's really hard. And, and it takes smart systems and talented people to do it well. And what that means is that not everybody can do this work at really you know high levels. And so it does become really important that for those folk who are absolutely doing incredible things in circumstances that nobody would wish on anybody, that we lift them up, we amplify them, and we find tangible ways of making sure that they can serve more kids if that's what they desire to do. And the small number of folks generally who are not doing this work well and are not advancing student or family or community interests that we as a community definitively say, that's just not good enough. Our kids deserve more and better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Going about this work is about being intentional, but it's also about being strategic. And you all are really showing us that in order to get this work done, we have to be strategic, we have to plan. And so talk about this strategic plan that, that you all recently completed 
And also talk about the development. How did it come about? Who was at the table? And what do you all plan to do with this? Yeah, um, it might be easier to start to define who was not at the table than who was because we took the idea of being inclusive very seriously. And so we got, so the process of our strategic planning development was over many, many months that included many, many different stakeholders from authorizing professionals to some school board members to folks that work in advocacy, both state and kind of local advocacy spaces to really high quality, talented school leaders that gave us lots of important information to folks who think about issues of equity and ensuring that all kids, particularly underserved kids, are getting what they need. Internal staff and many, many, many others. I mean, we we got feedback from hundreds of people in the process um, that we engaged in. And ultimately, what we came out with was the importance of high quality, innovative and equitable educational opportunities and building right infrastructures of listening and acting from community aspirations, building policy and practice some um, infrastructures that we can get more innovative kind of schools that emerge from communities, really making sure that authorizing and the broader charter schooling work reflects the communities of people that charter schools serve, which by the way, um, about 70% of folks in charter schools are folks of color. And then third, making sure that we are broadening our commitments to community-centeredness and quality and equity in and beyond right, the charter sector and across a range of stakeholders. That planning and our strategic priorities are critical. And I'm, I could not be more pleased with the engagement of so many different kinds of people in helping to shape the things that we're going to be trying to accomplish on behalf of kids and families. Diversity works. It's harder. It's messier. No doubt when you have right people that are providing feedback to you that tend to be both center left and center right in the political aisles or school leaders and authorizers or folks involved in local versus, you know, kind of national or state advocacy. It can get messy, right? Getting feedback and trying to sift through all of those things. And it takes more time. But our plan is so much better for it. And the work that we are going to do is so much better for it because it was a truly inclusive process of defining kinds of things that we need to do as an organization for kids, families, and communities. In, in all transparency, I want to say I was at the table as well and was so it's excited and energized at the conversations, at the, the questions that were being asked. And to your point, to those who were at the table, you know, how can we ensure that this plan is a living document and not something that you all do you, and you put on the shelf and you post to your website? Like, how do we ensure that this actually is implemented fully? Yeah, any plan must be actualized. And so the good thing is, while, you know, we um, have become right more public in our priorities and the things that we're trying to accomplish, this work has already started. I and mean, we're already, you know, kind of knee deep into activating the kinds of things we need to do, including um, having right important focus group conversations with a wide range of stakeholders around how we can think differently about the authorization process for newer replicating schools, but from really working with authorizers in the field, including authorizers of color, to really understand right, their experiences and how um, we can better define and describe authorizing to a broader audience of folks, 
to initial conversations with people like you and others around, um, you know, how can we get smarter about making sure that the things we learn in authorizing and the things that we can learn in oversight across public education can come together so that we can impact many, many more students. And the critical element of partnership these days, Curtis, is another really important way that our intentions are being activated. I am so thankful that NAXA has a number of partners from kind of all the walks of life, all spectrums that see a part of what they want to accomplish in our plan. And we are actively cultivating some of those partnerships and doing a lot of work together in order to um, achieve big goals and big aims for kids and families and communities. One thing I was, I was so excited to hear about was that the direction in which you all are moving is one that's going to, as you and you use the word inclusive, I believe, but it's this idea that, you know, what is it, 6% of students in this country, you know, are, are, are attending charter schools. And many of those who are in that 6% are in charter schools that are authorized by school boards, school boards like, like my own here in, in Maryland. And so what will this plan mean for the millions of students and leaders who are not in charter schools, or in charter schools that are authorized by more traditional school boards? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Um, and I would say the third pillar of our plan speaks directly to making sure that we are broadening our commitment to quality and smart oversight and community centeredness, both within and beyond the charter sector and across a range of stakeholders. I think it's also important that we like move away from what frankly are just silly divides in many instances between smart, capable people trying to do good things across public education. And that's why, right, as PPI and RAS, who I've written about and believe in and have observed, you know, we are also observing, right, an increase, right, in schools and programs that are trying to do, you know, different ways of organizing learning. They need a level of autonomy from some structures that just don't work well. Um, many of those are in the charter space and absolutely part of what NAXA believes in is growing charter sector and the charter work because we believe those conditions um, and the evidence is pointing at continuing to come to the fore that when done well, charter schools are doing amazing things for kids and families. But we're also seeing, right, more autonomous kinds of schools, different ways of emerging learning occurring in lots of other different places. And so it does become important, I think, for all of us to work together on particular district structures and even outside the traditional education spaces um, altogether. And there have been, I think, some important learnings, at least in authorizing, that have come to the fore in this space, Curtis, that I think have a wider applicability. You know, we've learned a lot about things like performance contracts contracting, right? It's the, the way in which it's critical to kind of clarify what accountability expectations are and what kind of autonomy, right, folks have that can guard against infringements that don't make sense. We learned a lot about performance management uh, and how to think about uh, sectors of schools, ways in which they are engaging in. We've learned a lot about how to assess for adequate community need and demand for new kinds of approaches right? Making sure that communities, that what we are producing are what communities are looking for and parents will trust their kids uh, to send them there in a whole lot of other ways. Now, certainly, right, authorizing and chartering hasn't always gotten this right. And there are things that we need to learn from many different kinds of folks in the space. 
or we have gotten it right, um, which is in a lot of places, especially urban locales. If you look at Credo's urban schools analysis study, that when we do get this right, it's life-changing for kids and families. And so we're really excited about in the next few months, um, identifying and then ultimately launching a task force that we hope will include um, not only kind of authorizing heads, but state chiefs and elected school board members, superintendents, local community advocates, and everyone who's interested in how um, kind of new and different ways of doing schooling that are being rightly demanded by communities can emerge in many different places. And NAXA is an organization that wants to lead in working through and figuring those things out together, because it's really important to recognize, Curtis, that while authorizing has been kind of specific to charter schooling, if you're doing the work of overseeing schools thinking deeply about what kinds of what your expectations, accountability expectations are, and providing important autonomies for school, and then engaging in smart oversight, you're doing the work of authorizing. Um, and that includes a whole lot more folk than we've engaged in the past and excited about growing that. Well, I mean, I, I think that that's a great place to wrap up and to say, you know, I, I am excited. We at Reinventing America Schools are ready willing and able to to help support the work that you're doing because we care that much about the families the students you're serving but also just the principles of freedom and access that i think you and i agree are inalienable and you know those who are i think you said melanin blessed or uh, <laughs> yep or, that, that, or, that, that's or, a, what my grandmother said or, yep or some would say sun-kissed uh have 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 been deprived of and so Again, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for joining us today on today's episode of the Radically Pragmatic Podcast. For so our listeners, please follow the work of Noxa and continue to follow uh, the amazing things they're doing to support students and families. Stay tuned to the work that we're doing at the Reinventing America Schools Project, and we look forward to seeing you on our next podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.